been in a series here over Philippians and a kind of a verse-by-verse -verse study of, of this uh, great book. And we've gotten up to the second chapter. And today we'll be using verses 1 through 11 of the second chapter of Philippians, if you'd like to follow in your Bible. But um, I do also, we have the verses printed there in your outline if you've got one of those. You know, the church at Philippi, it was a great church. We've, we've, I've talked about that like in the first chapter several times, but it was a great church. It was generous in giving. It was bold in its witness, sound doctrine, um, and he, they were unashamed of their relationship with Apostle Paul. You know, I mean, it was just really a, a great church, one of the better churches that, that he was involved in there. I would like to think that our church models the Philippian church. Nevertheless, there's a serious threat that kind of lurked in the shadows. Even as great as this church was, there was this threat that just kind of lurked in the background there. You see, there was two of the church's longtime members. They were at odds. And other members were beginning to take sides. So you can see how this would be a big problem in the church. Well, out of all the sins a church can commit, I think nothing destroys our fellowship and our evangelistic success like the sin of division. Nothing. Been in the ministry a long time, and division will destroy a church. A few weeks ago, we shared some pretty hard words, you know, for those long-ranger Christians, you know, those who want to claim Jesus as their Savior, but they don't want to have a fellowship with, with his church. So they don't go. But the truth is this. You know, there's many people today, they've adopted that uh, heretical view after being turned off by a local church that was filled with bitter strife and judgment, which are the telltale signs of division. You know, and Jesus said in Mark, the third chapter, he said, a house divided against itself, it cannot stand. And it won't. And in the garden, if you remember that scene when, when Jesus, he cried, he says, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And folks, even in the Old Testament, King David, he got it right in Psalms 133rd chapter in the very first verse he said how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity you know this unity thing in the church this is a big deal this is what calls you know lack of unity is what causes churches to split to divide and be done away with you know paul he hated the sin of division and i think i can say that with confidence because <clears throat> he, there was a constant burden on his heart, you know, which addressed, which he addressed in the sin of division in every letter that he wrote. The truth of the matter is he mentions three times in Romans, twice in uh, Corinthians, and at least one each in Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Thessalonians. And then when he wrote to Pastor Timothy, he wrote this in the third chapter, he said, warn a divisive man once and when, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with it. But that's pretty harsh. That's pretty serious. I think this was a burden on his heart. You know, the issues that 
if they had a grown to a, a full grown um, schism or split or divide here, there's no doubt in my mind that the Apostle Paul would have had some harsh words for this because he hated division. You know, he would have had some hard words of, re of rebuke. But here, it's not that harsh, just kind of yellow lights and his great love for this church, you know, it compelled him to make this impassioned plea for unity here. And so today, so that our fellowship and our witness can remain intact, we need to examine these three principles of unity from Paul's plea here. So we're going to look at these first 11 verses, starting with the first two here. Um, Philippians begins with our motivation for unity. This is our motivation here for unity. You know, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Folks, for Cabin Swamp Church of Christ to please God, we too must learn to be like-minded. Amen? And like-mindedness, you know, it begins when we recognize and we really set our minds on the wonderful things that we share via our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, our true beliefs and our true values, you know, those things that we think about first will ultimately determine how we behave. I know in Proverbs, the 23rd chapter, it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And then in Romans, the 8th chapter in verse 5, it says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Folks, this is, once again, why we're so serious about teaching sound doctrine here at Cabin Swamp. You know, hear people say all the time, you know, when we're preaching sound doctrine and, and preachers do that, they always hear, well, doctrine is just so boring, or just be practical, or just speak about today's issues. But let me tell you something. We never get more practical um, by neglecting doctrine. Never. Because, see, doctrine, knowing doctrine, that, that is the revealed mind and the heart of God. That's what equips us to make the right and practical choices in any and every situation. We've got to start from a good, solid foundation here. You know, a right practical or uh, a right practical choices always flow from right theology. This is why throughout the whole New Testament, as you're reading it, so often you find important little word, therefore. Remember while you're reading, you see the word therefore. You see that a lot. See, whenever Paul had addressed some practical issue in the church, he always began with doctrine. He always began by reminding God's people of God's revealed truth about his nature and his will. And then when everybody was thinking right theology, when they were on the same page here, then he would say, therefore, in light of these truths, which is how you ought to think, this is how you ought to live, and this is how you ought to act. Now, chapter 1, you know, it was Paul's doctrinal teaching. It kind of culminated in the therefore, 
Stand firm and strive together for the faith. That's kind of what the first chapter was. The second chapter here, it really just continues helping us to apply the doctrine. The Philippians, they were to stand and they were to strive together in unity because of the truth that they knew by God's revelation and by their own experience. They were gonna stand in that truth. Now, if you back up there to that first verse and you look, there's a little word there. And if you're taking notes, you might wanna circle that word if, if. Now that word if, that first verse, it introduces a first class conditional clause. You know, and in Greek, there are several kinds of conditional or if then clauses. Sometimes if means if, and it is possible, but here in this first class conditional form, this if means if, and this is an absolute certainty. That's what it means in the Greek. So verse one, you know, would actually be better translated in English for us to understand like this, since or because we have had such great encouragement in Jesus Christ, and since we have deeply experienced comfort from his love and sweet fellowship of the spirit and gentle tenderness and intense compassion, since these are all facts in your life, the least you can do is love one another here. The very least you can do is to stop arguing over petty issues and unite together to win this broken world to him. That's what he's saying here. Now, I understand that in the church, you know, we all have um, different backgrounds. We don't come from the same background. You know, they may be some different colors and, and speak different languages, just like we saw pictures of our brothers and sisters there with what Tom's working with on the screen a while ago. You know, we all have uh, different things. We like different things. And frankly, very rarely do we see anything always the same. We always see things different. You know, we don't even have the same views on every aspect of Bible doctrine. But let me tell you something. What we do know, you know, that all true followers of Jesus Christ share some of the same common experiences that Paul mentions here. We all do. And folks, all of these monumental things here, which we share together, should be motivation enough for all of us to set aside our petty differences and work together to advance the cause and bring pleasure to our Father's heart. What do you think? Amen. Second thing here, Paul, he gets very practical and he identifies our method for unity in verses three and four, our method for unity. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than our, yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, the truth is, very few conflicts in churches, and frankly, you know, in any of our relationships, have to do with huge, weighty matters of doctrine or principle. Usually, they don't. I've seen churches split over the color that they're going to paint the bathroom, which is dumb, folks. You know, at the end of our conflicts, we often try to paint them as such, you know, to self-justify what we've said, you know. Um, but the vast majority of our troubles are the direct result of personal pride and preferences. 
You know, and according to Paul, the simple secret to overcoming pride is humility. That's it. The simple secret to overcoming pride is humility. Now, sinful pride in an individual, in a family, in a church, or a nation will always destroy, divide, and perpetuate conflict. Every time. The first chapter of James in verse 1, he says, what, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Folks, I've seen people split over just the, the dumbest things. You know, there was a story one time told of the man that was, he was marooned on this desert island. He was there for five or six years. And he was off course. Nobody went there. Boats didn't go by there. Planes didn't travel there. So he was there. He built a hut. And he built a place to worship there, another hut. And then there was another one. Finally, someone was flying off course and saw that there was three huts on this island. So they sent people out there to, to find out. And sure enough, they found this guy, and they asked him, well, what is these huts for? Three huts, and just only you. He said, well, this is where I live. He said, this hut is where um, I go to church. He said, that hut over there is where I used to go to church. <laughs> Sometimes divisions are just that stupid, folks. Um, when people quarrel, the only path to unity is humility. Now, I believe sustainable humility is only possible if you're a Christian. You say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. Let me explain. See, when non-Christians quarrel, the best possible solution is always some kind of compromise, which is really a perpetuation of pride as parties find a way to just save face, you see. But Christians have the ability to achieve a deep and a, a abiding unity that is not merely a truce or a temporal um, cessation of hostilities there. When each of us, when we begin by confessing that our ultimate, you know, um, and in fact our only goal is to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, then confession and repentance and true forgiveness is possible. And with a shared ultimate goal here, and those things that, you know, at, at the foundation, a proactive humility will eventually snuff out division. And it always has been, and it'll foster unity. Now, Paul gives us three steps here that we can all take to um, develop our hum humility here. Step one is this. Check your ambition. Check your ambition. Now, godly ambition, having zeal to be fruitful and victorious and achieve noble uh, pursuit, that's it's a wonderful and a highly desirable quality but I need to warn you about this, but ambition is kind of like fire. You know, that same fire that brings life-giving warmth, if it's unchecked, it can burn and destroy everything in its path. So we need to be careful with that. Last week, we saw this Greek word for selfish ambition, you know, eridea. You know, this is a, a self-seeking drive that actually wants to quarrel and hassle and fight or argue with others to win a goal. Aristotle himself, he even used this word to describe a self-promoting politician, you know, one who climbs his way to the top by stepping on the necks of everyone else. Does that describe anyone to you? Folks, 
This is an ugly word here. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, and verses 19 through 21, you know, it's listed as one of the deeds of the flesh. See, the Spirit wants nothing to do with selfishness, and he's actively working to change the aretheia in us to selflessness. And if the Spirit's bugging you, you know that that's probably what's going on there. Now, the key is to stop and to really think through why we do the things we do. Why do we do the things we do? You know, when you give someone a compliment, are you genuinely praising them for the way they look or the thing that they did, or are you hoping to get something out of it? You know, when you give, are you truly expressing love and, and uh, appreciation and <clears throat> uh, generosity, or are you just trying to buy respect? or affection, or manipulate someone to getting something you want, or in your own mind, you know, atone for something that you did or you didn't do. What is the motive there? You know, when you serve in the church, are your motives pure, or is there some selfishness involved? Step two, deflate your ego. Deflate your ego. Now, vain conceit, or kenodoxia, you know, is empty or groundless glory. It describes an assertive, arrogant person who is supremely but erroneously um, confident in themselves and all of their opinions. And folks, these aren't folks, they're not hypocrites and they're not pretenders. They truly believe, you know, that they're always right. You've seen folks like that. You know, they truly believe that they are special, but it's just not true. You know, they are in fact wrong and they're mistaken. You ever deal with anyone like that? Probably so. You know, as heavyweight champion of the world, it was Muhammad Ali, he proclaimed, I am the greatest. You can even pull up their um, infomercials and, and commercials now. I am the greatest. It, it shows him saying that. Well, one day on an airplane flight, the airplane attendant repeatedly asked him to put on his seatbelt. And he wouldn't do it. And finally, he got aggravated, and he said, I am Superman, and Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which that flight attendant quickly reminded him, well, Superman didn't need no airplane either. Now buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is, most of us aren't all that important. You know, if we were gone tomorrow, the sun would still find a way to rise. I'll guarantee it. Now, that's not saying that we shouldn't have a healthy sense of self-worth because we should. But that self-worth should be based on who we are in and to Jesus Christ rather than who we are in and to this world. See, there was a preacher's daughter. One time, the preacher asked her to draw a picture of a pastor um, who worked for Jesus. And this little girl, she drew her thing in the you know, picture, and she represented Jesus by a drawing um, with a giant cross that just dominated the page here. And then in the corner of the page, she drew this little tiny stick figure of a man. Well, that scale of her picture, it was laughable. But let me tell you something, it was accurate there. You see, Jesus is really big, and we are very, very small here. Paul says, folks, now that you see the scale of yourself, 
Consider others more highly or better than yourself. That's what he says here. See, humility is really not um, thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. That's what humility is. Step three says, put others first. Put others first. Now that, now the world, it tells us, look out for number one. You are the most important person. But Paul said this in verse four. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. You know, and Jesus, of course, he made it perfectly simple and perfectly clear in his golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Folks, I believe that humility begins with attention to the little things. That's where it starts. You know, it's giving up your seat or your parking spot. It is opening the door or giving another your place in line. It's making sure that everyone gets greeted at church. It's, it's about making sure that others have what they need and they're comfortable before taking care of your own needs and your own comfort. It's about cleaning up after yourself at a fast food restaurant and walking the grocery cart back to the rack at the store. It's about showing up on time and going the extra mile and doing what you can to make your coworker look good. You see, it's being the first one to congratulate a, 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 your peer or your coworker on their promotion. See, now looking out for the interest of others isn't always easy. Matter of fact, it's downright hard because it requires humility, you see. But Paul says it's the key to successful relationships and your unity in the Lord's family. Folks, this is important. Paul mentions this in every one of the letters that he's written. This is something that was on his heart because he could see it. And finally, number three here, Paul points us to our ultimate model of unity, verses five through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, many theologians, they call those wonderful and theologically pregnant verses the Christ hymn there. And there's a real temptation here to treat this section as an independent doctrinal treatise here, or a piece of systematic theology. You know, with, but with all those big words wiped aside here, I think Paul's clear purpose here was to give us a very vivid and practical illustration, a picture of how unity is achieved through the humility. And I think that's a wonderful illustration of that. See, his simple challenge to the Philippians and folks to us is follow Jesus for he is our ultimate model. In his incarnation, 
you know, the putting on of the flesh. Jesus did two things here. First, he emptied himself to serve us. That's one thing. Verse seven says, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. You know, well, who was Jesus? Was he God or was he man? Well, the answer is yes. He was absolutely 100% both here. When the Bible, when it says the word who was that was with God and was God from the beginning, emptied himself, when the scriptures tell that, now understand that didn't in any way imply that he became less than God. He did not discard his deity then, his very nature, but rather he poured it into humanity. He poured it into us. God poured himself into human flesh to allow us to get closer to him and to see him closer than ever before. Colossians, the first chapter, reminds us in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus said in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Listen, Jesus didn't relinquish his glory. He just concealed it or he veiled it you know, in human flesh. Um, on occasion, even in the New Testament, we see that flesh kind of pulled back and we get a glimpse of the Lord's true glory. You know, at the transfiguration, it's a good example. And perhaps when he walked on water. And of course, Paul saw it on the road to Damascus. And John saw it in Revelation. And someday we're going to see the brilliant unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. But while he was on earth, as a man, for the most part, he concealed his glory. And I am convinced that he did that for us. You see, he made himself approachable so that he could come near to us and he could serve us so he could feed the hungry and he could touch the eyes and the ears and the limbs of the blind and the deaf and the lame. He did that so that we could see who he really was. So he could model humility by washing the feet of his servants. And we could see that. We could see that visually. He emptied himself to serve us. Secondly, he humbled himself to save us. He humbled himself to save us. In Mark, the 10th chapter, in verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus needed some flesh. Think about this for a moment. A non-incarnate deity has no flesh to nail to a cross. The Bible says in verse eight, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now just let this verse sink in for Just let it marinate for a second. God humbled himself. How do you humble God? You ever think about that? Now, we can humble people, you know. We can humble a little child because we're bigger. We can humble a homeless person because maybe we're more affluent. Or we can humble an uneducated man because maybe we've been to school. But who in this room is big enough, strong enough, rich enough, or smart enough to humble God? No one. Listen. The only way God could ever be humbled is if he humbled himself. See, 
And God did humble himself, and he became obedient to a salvation's plan, even unto death. Now, nobody in this room is going to be obedient unto death. You know why? Well, unless the Lord comes while you're alive. But other than that, death is not optional for you. You know, we're all going to die whether we like it or not. But Jesus didn't have to die. See, Jesus obeyed his Father's plan, and he willingly chose death. You know, he chose, according to Romans 5 eight, to demonstrate his great love for us, that in while we were yet sinners, he died for us. See, this is how salvation's plan, how the plan of redemption works. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made himself who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what sin is? Of course we do. You know, we know sin is breaking God's law. But what's the bottom line? Bottom line is sin is man claiming uh, the place where only God belongs. And you know what salvation really is, the bottom line? It is God taking the place where only man belongs. There. 2 Corinthians explains it a lot better than I can. 2 Corinthians 8, chapter and verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Mm-hmm. Folks, what a great gift. It's a wonderful gift. Where's your quarrel today? You know, maybe your maybe marriage is in shambles or maybe um, anger with a neighbor has caused you to have your own little cold war going on. Or maybe you and your kids are at a standoff and nobody wants to budge. Or maybe you've been avoiding a brother or sister in the church. You know, whenever we have a quarrel with another one, the temptation is this, is to just withdraw and back off from the fellowship But I want you to know today, the word of the Lord to us is very clear. If you've ever gotten anything at all from your fellowship with Jesus, if you care at all about his will or his heart, you must pursue unity with his family by being humble and never forgetting that your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. He's our model. He's our inspiration. He is our exalted Savior to whom our knees is going to bow and our tongues is going to confess that he is Lord. See, this is the very least you can do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, we're so grateful for your word. We thank you for its simplicity. We thank you for people like Paul that could give us the warning to say, this is how you keep a church intact. Father, he warns us about division and he tells us how wonderful and how right unity is. And Father, may we always be found guilty of being unified in your son, Jesus Christ, unified in the word. Father, we just pray that this morning, if there's any outside of Christ, they would certainly consider making you their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.